This is Scott, host of the Unprocessed Knowledge Podcast and Black author. You could get all three of my books. My first book, Systematic Racism and Capitalism, Alliance of Oppression. My second book, Hypocrisy in America, The Veil of White Supremacy. And my third book, my first novel, Exodus 2035, all available on Amazon.com and Amazon Kindle. If you don't have a Kindle, you can download the Kindle app to your smartphone or tablet, and you can access those products. Thanks for listening. You just don't follow the masses. You don't follow the, the quick to convict and uh, fire him. He has a right to a hearing. Mike Pugliese is an ex-cop and defense attorney. He does not represent Garrett Rolfe, who is seen on body cam video with Rayshard Brooks during the last moments of Brooks' life in a Wendy's parking lot in southeast Atlanta. Body cam footage shows it was a peaceful encounter until Brooks seized a taser and took off running. Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms said she ordered Rolfe's firing, but the Atlanta Civil Service Board said the city itself broke the law by firing Rolfe without giving him a hearing first and revoked his dismissal. Right now, Officer Rolfe has received more justice than the family of Rashard Brooks. Attorneys Chris Stewart and Justin Miller represent Brooks' family. They blame the city for failing to follow its own legal procedures when it fired Rolfe without a hearing. We don't understand how that could happen um, but it appears maybe that was done um, just to pacify all of the people that were upset. But we temporary uh, justice is not real justice. After the board reinstated Rolf, Bottoms defended the firing in a statement. Given the volatile state of our city and nation last summer, the decision to terminate this officer after he fatally shot Mr. Brooks in the back was the right thing to do. Had immediate action not been taken, I firmly believe that the public safety crisis we experienced during that time would have been significantly worse. Welcome to the Unprocessed Knowledge Podcast. As you just heard in the clip provided by 11 and Live Atlanta, Officer Garrett Rolfe will be getting his job back after he shot and killed Rashad Brooks, even though he is still facing murder charges for killing Rashad Brooks. He has gotten his job back as a police officer. Now, it's important to note that a white man has more due process and justice for losing his job than a black man does for being murdered by the police. I mean, you got to damn near move heaven and earth to hold a police officer accountable for murdering a black person. You got to have a worldwide protest, 24 hour news coverage in order for a police officer to be held accountable for murdering a black man. But if a white person loses their job, they go to court and they get justice. Not only does he get his job back as a police officer, he gets all kind all he, he gets all the back pay. So he has not been punished for anything thus far. If this thing goes to trial, well, it's going to go to trial. Once this thing goes to trial, the earth will have to shake again in order to hold him accountable. It looks like they're, they're setting it up so he will get off. Derek Chauvin was convicted of murdering George Floyd. And it looks like they don't want to set, really set a nationwide precedent of holding officers accountable. So him getting his job back is a step towards he didn't do anything wrong. 
So since he didn't do anything wrong, he was in the right. So you can't hold him accountable for anything. And it really doesn't make it any better that the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, went on record as to say, well, at the time, you know, the, the city was was on the brink of social destruction. You had a lot of angry black people protesting at what was going on. So we just thought it was best to fire this officer just to save the city. What she should have came out and said was this officer was this officer was guilty as hell and not fit to be an officer in Atlanta after what he did. So that's why he was fired. So I guarantee you they are going to use those comments from the mayor to absolve this officer of any wrongdoing. We got a lot to talk about this week before we get too deep into this week's stories and everything that's going on in the earth that I feel needs to be talked about. I have to let everyone know that I am a proud member of the UNU Network. Everybody should be following the network on Instagram at U A N D U underscore network. Not only can you find this podcast, you can find a taste to consider podcast, separate the two podcasts, three stars, two bar podcasts, and anybody else that joins the network that joins the family, you will be able to find them there while I'm at it. Everybody should be following me on Instagram at unprocess underscore knowledge click the link tree in my bio in order to find this podcast and all three of my books available on amazon.com and a taste to consider podcast just recently launched an online store he got some brand new fire t-shirts for the summertime available in his online store possibly more products to come you can follow his Instagram. You can find that under the UNU Network page. Click on the link tree in his bio in order to access his online store. And while we're talking about the police, police fired 24 shots at a handcuffed man. Why didn't they turn on their body cameras? The case of Arian McRae illustrates the patchwork nature of police body cameras around the country. It has been almost a year and a half since Arian McRae was shot dead by police in a Walmart parking lot, handcuffed and in possession of a gun. But his family still has a host of unanswered questions. McRae, 28 years old, had raced out of the Walmart in Chester, South Carolina, a small town an hour north of Columbia. After he was placed in handcuffs when he was accused of stealing a $45 lock in November 2019, police said. But exactly what happened next remains unclear, in part because the responding officers didn't activate their body cameras until after McCray, a black father and former high school football star, was gunned down in a hell of police bullets. Back in November 2019, apparently this young man was accused of stealing a $45 lock from Walmart. Police show up. They handcuffed him. They say he was in possession of the gun. And, but they shot and killed him 40, 24 times. All these police were armed with body cameras. They didn't turn them on until after this young brother was murdered. Now, here's where we had to put our thinking caps on. The young man was handcuffed. When you handcuff somebody, you handcuff their hands behind their back. You don't handcuff their hands in the front. So if his hands are cuffed behind his back, even if he is in possession of a firearm, the police are in no danger of being shot. 
He cannot pull the firearm out from behind him with his hands cuffed and start shooting anybody. Right? He's handcuffed. If they got close enough to handcuff this brother, why if they had a firearm on him, why didn't they remove the firearm? How was this brother handcuffed and shot 24 times? That's a question that deserves answers. And you can't take the police word for it because they had body cameras. How come nobody chose to activate the body camera until after the murder had been committed? Why? Because they did not want to want the public. They did not want me or you to see them murdering this black man over a $45 lock from Walmart. And since we're talking about police not activating their body cameras, or at least not showing people what happens on the body cameras, let's go down to Elizabethtown, North Carolina. Thanks, Dave. The family of Andrew Brown Jr. got their first glimpse yesterday of the moment when he was shot and killed by Pascotank Sheriff's deputies. The calls for the body camera video to be made public continue. Laura Pelliser has more from Elizabeth City. Khalil Malik Faraby has had a lot to process over the past few days. He lost his father, and his newborn son lost a grandfather. He never got a chance to meet him, and that hurt my heart to the fullest. He gonna grow up without even getting a chance to even know him, really, besides of what people say and not who he really was. Farabee saw just 20 seconds of video. It showed his father's killing by Pasquotank County Sheriff's deputies last Wednesday. Attorneys for the family say Brown was shot in the back of the head as he was trying to drive away. I really don't know the truth besides the video, but the video wasn't even what I expected because it's been edited. Can you describe that video for me? It's an execution. You want to see execution, you'll see that. Video. 20 seconds of video was all the sheriff's office showed Brown's relatives. They want to see more, and they wanted to see it days ago. County officials have filed a request with the court so the footage can be released to the public. A judge will ultimately decide. Political commentator and lawyer Bakari Sellers is one of the prominent attorneys who have joined the Brown family legal team. He says he's never experienced a process for seeking body camera footage quite like this. I have never seen law enforcement redact a video, cut a video short at the beginning and end, guard closely who can see it and blare out the face of law enforcement. I've never seen anything like it. So the family still has no idea what happened to their loved one. Down in Elizabethtown, North Carolina, the sheriff's department will not show them the whole video. They only showed them 20 seconds. They blurred out faces. They chopped it up. They cut it up. They will not allow the entire video to be released to the family or to the public. Why? Because they're covering up a murder. They don't want a bunch of protesters. They don't want CNN down there 24 hours a day. They don't want that to become ground zero for the next social justice milestone in order to hold these police officers accountable for what they did again Derek Chauvin he got convicted and now these police these police departments they are circling their wagons and they are protecting themselves how are they protecting themselves well if you don't have any video then it's just you're gonna have to take our word for it right? nope you didn't have any bystanders videotaping this one on their iPhone so the only video the only video evidence of what happened we are in control of 
So what happens if the video is doctored? What happens if it's if it's cut up? If it's lost? If it's erased? No proof of anything. Just have to take our word for it, right? It's also important to note, during the shooting, there were 10 sheriff deputies involved. Since this happened, one retired, two resigned, and the rest are on administrative leave. Let's talk about America's mayor, Rudy Giuliani. To put in context, former mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani, while he was mayor, he got the reputation of being the mayor that was tough on crime. He was going to clean up New York City. He was going to crack down on crime. Context is important. They used to have a saying while he was mayor. They used to up up in New York City called Giuliani time. In the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, when Giuliani was mayor, they had a saying up there that the police department used to use called Giuliani time because he was the law and order mayor. He was the crackdown on crime mayor. Rudy Giuliani, he came up with stop and frisk. He came up with the broken windows policy, which means any neighborhood that has a lot of broken windows or, or, or boarded up windows, we're going to have a increased police presence in that neighborhood and we're really going to crack down. There's also a documentary called Giuliani Time, which examines Giuliani's time and his record as mayor of New York City before 9-11. Here's a little clip of Giuliani defending his stop and frisk policy. We did it twice uh, and I did it, but I had some reluctance because he changed the program. The program that uh, Bratton, Safer, Carrick, they were the three who developed it, and I developed it. Was a much more careful program. I guess the easiest way to describe it is, in 2001, the Justice Department, Eastern District of New York, wanted to bring suit against us for violating civil rights. I asked for a meeting with Janet Reno and Eric Holder, and I talked them out of it. Uh, I talked them out of bringing the suit because I showed them our statistics were perfect. That. We were following not race, we were following complaints. In other words, why, why did we search 70% African-American males? Mm -hmm. We did it because 75% of our complaints were of African-American males committed violent crimes. So who were we supposed to go look for? The, the, in other words, the African-American community was selecting for us who to go look for. And you showed them statistics at the Clinton Justice Department, you're saying that crime was coming down and that, that it was effective. The crime was coming down and that we kept it carefully limited to about 95 to 100,000 because that's what we could manage. What I think they lost sight of, <laughs> because they're not lawyers. Bloomberg took over and took it from 100,000 police 600,000. So lost control of it or? 600,000 stops. Let's break this down from the beginning. Stop and frisk. The problem with stopping, well, the, one of the major problems with stop and frisk wasn't, it wasn't just stop and frisk. It was stop and terrorize. It was stop and beat the hell out of you. It was stop and throw you in prison if you ask questions what we were stopping you for. And it predominantly happened to black and Hispanic people who live in New York City. They very rarely stop and frisk a white person for any damn thing. Right. This was just another tactic to terrorize bl black and Latino people in New York City. Ruli Giuliani came up with this. Now, he's explaining in the clip 
Well, the reason that over 70 percent of the people who were stopped and frisked and when he was in charge of the program, 100 stop, 100,000 stops a year is because, well, 70 percent of all the violent crime, you know, was committed by black people. We would get all these calls and the suspect would be a black male. So we got to stop every black person in New York City to find out if he committed this violent crime. Now, here's the problem with that. If a white person commits a crime in New York City, if a middle aged white man commits a crime, they are not stopping every middle aged white man in New York City to find out if the perpetrator is him. Right. If a white person commits a crime, they do proper police work. They, they get a description. Height, eye color, hair color. What was he wearing? What was he wearing? What direction did he go off in? Do you know his name? Do you know what neighborhood he li- he lives in? And they go look for the suspect. If th- someone calls the police department and a crime happened and they say, well, the suspect was black. All they do is go go off a race. We got to stop every black man till we find out who did this crime. There, uh, You know how many people live in New York City? All right. New York City is the most highly populated city in the country. All right. Over eight million people live in New York City. So he's saying, well, you know, when I was running, you know, the terrorist program known as Stop and Frisk, it was under control. We was only making like 100,000 stops a year. But when Mayor Bloomberg took over, he took it up to 600,000 stops a year. And that's just ridiculous. <laughs> Think about this. They stopping 600,000 black and Latino people a year for nothing. Beating them down, terrorizing them, throwing them in prison. It was just an all out attack on the black and Latino citizens in New York city written into law to give the police department an excuse to terrorize non-white people anytime they felt like it for anything. And they could do it under the umbrella of stop and fret. And it's definitely a policy based on race. He said it himself. He contradicted himself. He was like, well, this, this didn't have anything to do with race, but you know, if I get a call and the suspect is black, well, then I got to stop every black black person to find out, you know, who did it. Well, you're stopping people based off of race, not based off any real police work. Let's just use our common sense here. Well. Last week, Giuliani time appears to came to Rudy Giuliani because the FBI raided his home. The FBI raid on Rudy Giuliani's New York apartment and office has sparked debate about which criminal charges Giuliani may face and signals a widening criminal investigation into his Ukrainian drive to help Trump in 2020 by sullying Joe Biden. Here's what's going on. The FBI kicked in Rudy Giuliani's door. They raided his apartment. They seized electronic devices looking for evidence that goes back to the 2020 election that he was pretty much the middleman for Donald Trump into helping the Ukrainians interfere in the election. The charge is that Donald Trump colluded with Ukraine to help him win the election by digging up dirt on Joe Biden, which is illegal, a foreign power meddling in a U.S. election. That is illegal. So they're saying that he was working on behalf of Donald Trump to get deals done to say, hey, here's what we need you to do. We need you to help us win this election by 
digging up dirt on Joe Biden, less, you know, making Joe Biden look bad, putting stories out there that will help Donald Trump win the election. And if you do that, then you will gain favorable standing in America. And, you know, we can cut some deals behind closed doors. Maybe we can work some things out. We can work out some trade deals. We can work out some 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 tariffs. We can work out different things that will be financially benefit to your country. If you help Donald Trump win this election. All right. Giuliani was the was the go between for that, which is illegal. That's what he's being investigated for. It goes back to Donald Trump trying to win the election by colluding with a foreign power. That's what it all goes back to, which is illegal. Now, really, Giuliani, he lives in New York City. Really, Giuliani is a middle aged white man. So now are the police going to stop every middle aged white man in New York City to find out if they had something to do with this crime? Is, is that going to happen? Because, you know, there there are others. He didn't act alone. There are other perpetrators. There are other suspects out there. Now, does the does the police force in a city of over eight million people need to stop every middle aged white man to find out if they had something to do with this? And if the white man gives him some lip, if he says, hey, why are you stopping me? Hey, what, what's going on? Are they going to beat the hell out of him? Are they going to drag him into prison? Are they going to arrest him under the umbrella of <laughs> stop and frisk? Are they going to do that? Nah, not going to happen. And it would never happen because the policy was based on race. Let's go back down to South Carolina. A lot going on down there. My goodness. A black man enslaved by a white restaurant owner should be awarded more than five hundred thousand dollars of court rules. John Christopher Smith, who has intellectual disabilities, was forced to work at a South Carolina restaurant for over a hundred hours a week without pay for five years. A black man with intellectual disabilities should be awarded more than 500 grand after he was enslaved for five years at a South Carolina restaurant, a court rule. Bobby Paul Edwards, who was white, pleaded guilty in June of 2018 to one count of forced labor for using violence and other coercive means to make John Christopher Smith work at his restaurant for more than a hundred hours a week without pay. The U S department of justice previously said previously said in a press release as part of his guilty plea, Edwards was sentenced to 10 years in prison and was ordered to pay Smith $272,000 in restitution. However, a court ruled last month that the amount should be doubled and Smith should receive more than five hundred and forty five thousand. In the April 12th ruling, the U.S. Court of Appeals of the Fourth Circuit stated that the initial amount decided by the court had erred in refusing to include liquidated damages in its former order of restitution. Citing the Fair Labor Standards Act, the court said an employer who fails to pay minimum wages and overtime to a worker is liable for liquid damages in an amount equal to that missed compensation. So they are still practicing slavery down in South Carolina. A black man with mental disabilities was literally enslaved by a white restaurant owner and forced to work more than a hundred hours a week without pay. That's seven days a week, 14 and a half hours a day. 
Whew, yeah, that's slavery. If he had one day off, that's 17 hour days, six days a week. Now, this black man, he was mentally disabled. He had d- disabilities. And this this white restaurant owner basically kidnapped him and took advantage of him. Reading further into the story, it looks like this 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 white man took him in. He gave him a little cheap roach infested apartment to stay in. And, you know, he, he put a roof over his head. He let him work at his restaurant. He put food. He gave him food and he gave him clothing. He gave him shelter. This white man gave it to him. Right. He owned this little cheap roach infested apartment. He allowed this disabled man to live in. He allowed this man to work at his restaurant. So I'm a fe- I'm assuming he ate from the restaurant. So that's food. Probably gave him, you know, a little money for clothes to keep clothes on his back. But in return, he worked him 100 hours a week with no pay. And if the brother messed up on the job, he would beat him. He would call him all kinds of niggas. He would threaten to kill him if he reported this to authorities. And he would basically berate the man and say, hey, you know, the only reason you have food in your belly, the only reason you have a roof over your head, the only reason you got clothes on your back is because of me. And you working at this restaurant is paying me back. Five years, 100 hours a week, no paycheck. And this disabled man was scared. He was afraid for his life. This white man threatened to kill him numerous times. Now, this went on for years and years and years. Him taking advantage of this mentally disabled man. And I'm sure other people knew what was going on. But it took five years in order for somebody to to report this abuse, this abuse of a mentally disabled black man, this enslavement. It took five years for somebody to give a damn and report it. And for Bobby Paul Edwards to um, face justice. And does he really face justice? Because he was only sentenced to 10 years for enslaving a man for five. He was sentenced to 10 years and he got to pay him some money. If he was sentenced to 10 years, he'll probably be home in four. All right. Well, black people down in South Carolina, y'all need to be careful because you got this young brother that was shot 24 times while he was handcuffed. You got people being enslaved in restaurants. As we reported in the last show, you got a, a young black male just walking down the street being harassed by by a very large uh, military sergeant. That happened in Columbia, South Carolina as well. I don't know what the hell is going on down in South Carolina, but black folks, y'all better be very careful. If you see a black person working in a restaurant, if he if, if he's got a little fear in his eyes, if he look a little terrified, y'all might want to investigate because who knows how many people is being enslaved down in South Carolina. This this might be a whole thing. I'm, I'm not even joking. This story is disturbing. This isn't 500 years ago. This isn't 50 years ago. This, you know, this is right now. They still got slaves down in the South. Let's talk about the bone rooms. Let's talk about how elite schools and museums have amassed black and native human remains without consent and have been studying them. I don't think many people realize the deaths of the oppression that the enemy is willing to go to. I don't think they realize how just evil and demonic it is. I don't think they realize that even in death, they will take your remains, 
pass them around as if they were trophies. Study them and make money off of it. I mean, this this thing is a monster. This thing is a scourge on the planet. This is everything you see in the horror movies. Your oppressor, he's Freddy Krueger. He's the psychopath in Saw. He is Jason Voorhees. He is every monster you He's Dracula. He's the mummy. He's every monster you've seen in the horror movies. This is him. Turn now to shocking revelations that two Ivy League schools, the University of Pennsylvania and Princeton University, have been in possession of bones thought to belong to children who were killed in the 1985 police bombing of the Philadelphia home of the radical black liberation anti-police brutality group MOVE. In a minute, we'll show you video of the remains being used in an online teaching course and get response from Mike Africa Jr. In November, the Philadelphia City Council formally apologized for the police bombing, which killed six adults and five children and destroyed the surrounding 60 homes. Memories of the attack that killed the 11 people were resurfaced last week when the University of Pennsylvania and Princeton University acknowledged that for the past 36 years, anthropologists have been using the bones of at least one of the bombing victims, 14-year-old Trey Africa, in a video course posted online called Real Bones, Adventures in Forensic Anthropology. Penn Museum curator Janet Mong, a visiting Princeton University professor, holds bones thought to be of Tree Africa. The video is no longer available for public viewing, but anyone who already registered for the course can still access it. Democracy Now! obtained a copy from the Africa family. This is a clip. This is one of these cases where the material has some flesh on it, which I you know is not uncommon actually in forensics and forensic anthropology. Uh, in this case, uh, there is some soft tissue which is actually remaining, and the bones were actually burned as well. So it's got quite a complicated history. So I'll pick up just for a moment and show you that this is really the the tissue which is present on the specimen. It's not uh, a lot, but uh, absolutely it's there. This is the tendon that goes to uh, rectus femoris. It's actually intact and it's there. The femur is um, uh, uh, with much less tissue associated with it, but you still have in the fovea capitis the anchoring ligament, which is present in the head of the femur. Uh, the bones are, uh, I mean, you know, we would say like juicy, you know, meaning that you can tell that they are of a recently deceased individual. They have a lot of sort of sheen to them, at least this one does. And that is uh, because, of course, there's still uh, marrow in the marrow cavity, and it's sort of leaching basically out and into the bone, so it gives that kind of slick sort of appearance. If you smell it, it doesn't actually smell bad, but it smells like just kind of greasy, like an older style grease. Since this video was reported on last week, the Penn Museum and the University of Pennsylvania 
have apologized to the Africa family for allowing human remains recovered from the move house to be used for research and teaching and for retaining the remains for far too long. The bones are reportedly now in the possession of Alan Mann, a professor emeritus at Princeton, who apparently received them from the Philadelphia Medical Examiner's Office for forensic analysis in 1985. Mann told the outlet Inside Higher Education he's working to return, quote, the upper end of a thigh bone and a small part of one pelvic bone to the examiner's office and that he was, quote, sorry to learn that there's a perception that what I did with the move human remains was wrong, he said. So in 1985, during the bombing of the move organization, the police department uh, bombed the move organization, bombed, bombed the whole city block, destroyed their house, killed 14 people, murdered 14 people among them, men, women and children. So the police murdered these people, got their remains. And for the last 36 years, they've been passing their remains around, studying the bones, studying the bones of mur- black children murdered by the police you that was a real clip that that was a real classroom breakdown they in there sniffing the bones they're describing the texture of the bones there's like look at this it's kind of juicy and you can smell it and this is the bones of a black child that was murdered by the police this is demonic do you know how much it takes or how do you know how much it costs to take a class at an Ivy League school? You know how much it costs to take a class at Princeton, Princeton, at UPenn, at Harvard University? They are charging you a king's ransom just to take one class. And they're sitting in there studying the stolen remains of black people. And then once they get found out, they issue a weak apology and say, oh, well, we apologize if you guys think what we're doing is wrong. You know, how about we try to work with the family and get some of these remains back? I got a thigh bone here. Maybe I can get that back, that thigh bone back to the next again. How about not only do you apologize, how about you return all the, the remains of these murdered black people that you stole back to their families and how about you compensate them for the last 36 years how much do you realize how much money these institutions has made over the last 36 years on these remains let's get into tangibles why don't you cut these families a check how much how many students are in these classes how long has this class been going on? How much money has this institute have have these institutions made from these classes? Because I think the families need to be financially compensated. The Penn Museum also apologized last week for holding more than 1000 stolen skulls of enslaved people in its Morton collection. And the president of Harvard University issued a letter acknowledging The 22,000 human remains in its collection includes 15 from people of African descent who had who were enslaved in the United States. Vowing review of the school's ethics policies, I quote, this is a really vast problem, 
says historian Samuel Redman, author of Bone Rooms, from scientific racism to human prehistory in museums. Who also describes the reparation of Native American remains after Congress passed the Native American Graves Protection and Reparations Act in 1990. I quote, there are individual instances like this that are horrific and we may need to pay attention to, but it is a symptom of a much larger problem. The much larger problem is systematic racism, white supremacy. No, not only will they send the police to murder you and your children, they will collect the remains and study them and pass them around and teach classes on them. It's, it's, it's something about the skulls that they love. I, I can't be, you know, it's almost like a trophy. They love collecting the skulls of dead black people and examining them and looking at them. Ooh, look at this, the texture and the way it feels. And still, you can't get your history from TV. Reading is more important than watching television. But there is a powerful scene in the movie Django where they're sitting at the dinner table and Leonardo DiCaprio's character is talking about when he was a child, you know, the the slave master uncle ben took you know took care of his daddy for 50 years and lived on the plantation his whole life and and he died and everybody loved uncle ben and he pulls out a box and in the box is this dead black man's skull and he pulls the skull out and he's rubbing it and he's examining it and he's telling jamie fox now see this skull right here this is uncle ben i mean my god even in death they will hold on to your remains and use it to their advantage. It is sick. It is disgusting. It is terrifying. Now, these schools admit that they have they know that these were these remains were stolen. They talk about that in Harriet Washington's medical apartheid. Grave robbing was big business back in the day, and they would target black burial grounds sell the remains to institutions to universities and they would just study the remains of black people so they know that these remains would took in the family did had no idea this was going on and they passing around the skull and the bones and they making money off of it my god again not ignorance at all i mean the family of nat turner just got his remains back i think last year this is a story from last year for the past decade what's believed to be the skull of nat turner has been in the possession of richard hatcher former mayor of gary indiana how the hell he got it who who knows recently he turned it over to turner's descendants who have enlisted forensic experts for testing so nat turner the brother who led the slave rebellion down in southern virginia white folks have been passing his skull around for over a hundred years it's like a trophy they've been selling it to each other they've been auctioning it off they've just been passing it around and finally last year they just decided to send the remains back to his family it is sickening it's another another trophy, another braggism. It's another, look how I can dominate you even, even in death. Even after you die, I will pass your remains around as a trophy. 
Look at all these negras who we conquered. Look, look at all these skulls. Look at these remains. Look at all these black folks that we destroyed and we dominated over. That's really what it's all about. It's it's one of the symptoms of racism, and white supremacy that a lot of people really don't want to dig into how they will oppress and destroy you and use you even in death. It doesn't stop. This has been another episode of the Unprocessed Knowledge Podcast. Everybody should be following me on Instagram at unprocessed underscore knowledge. Everybody should be following the network. You and you underscore network on Instagram. You can keep up with us there. Let me take a look. If anything ever happens to me, I don't want the white man to get a fingernail of mine. Look, I said it. I'd put my body in the ground. I don't want a fingernail removed. I don't want a hair removed. They get nothing. They ain't going to be passing my school around. I'll be damned. Thanks for listening, guys. Be safe. Catch you next time.